Hey, Mom, what do you know about the devil? The little boy was almost four years old, and his mom, Lori Hale, was a theology professor, and she had not been in children's church with her son that day. And so she decided to kind of give the question back to him. Well, what do you think about the devil? She asked her almost four-year-old. Well, he said, the devil talked to Jesus, and he was mean. And then he whispered to his mom, if we were at a store and you and dad were on one aisle and I was on the other aisle and there was candy, the devil would say, you should take some. Well, the mom was racing in her mind. She was trying to think on her feet. She wasn't quite sure she was ready to have a theological conversation with her almost four-year-old about the devil, and she was wondering in children's church, maybe they could have focused more on Jesus and on his obedience to God, and so she was trying to figure out how to shift the conversation, and then she realized he's only three, and so I should just stay with his train of thought, and so she said to him, honey, if, if we were at a store, and, and dad and I were on one aisle, and you were on the other aisle, and the devil said to you about that candy, you should take some. What would you say back to the devil? Well, his face just erupted into a grin, and he said, well, I would say thank you. <laughs> and most of us have found ourselves in that same spot. Someone offers you a piece of wonderful chocolate cake at a party, and you have just decided to go on a sugar-free diet, but you find yourself reaching your hand out and saying, well, thank you, and savoring every morsel of that cake. Or someone offers you one more glass of wine at the party, and you think to yourself, well, I really shouldn't, as you hold out your glass and say, thank you. And Lent is that season where we practice our skills of resistance. During the 40 days leading up to Easter, Christians all around the world practice resisting all kinds of things from red meat to Facebook. And so for these six Sundays leading up to Easter, Dr. Graves and I will be talking about various spiritual practices because we all know that Christianity is more than a set of beliefs or ideological tenets but more of a way of life. And so the real question is, how do we practice that way of life? And one way is to resist. And so when we give up chocolate or alcohol, we are simply reinforcing those resistance muscles so that we as Christians can resist those more serious elements that pull us away from our faithfulness. Last week, I heard a podcast about a series of employees who were working in the tech industry, both in Microsoft and in Google, who had begun resisting the assignments that they were given at work because they had signed up at these companies to invent cutting-edge technologies that would help people and improve life for all people, and yet they were being asked to work on some new projects that were intended specifically for war. And so some of the employees resisted. In one case, that resistance encouraged the company to eventually drop the project altogether. And in another case, the employees were invited to move to a different area to work on a different project in the company. You see, resisting can be risky business, and resisting is hard work. 
I have a dear friend who is a charismatic leader and a brilliant doctor. But I gotta tell you, when he gets stressed, he sometimes cannot resist the urge to pop off and shout at whoever is nearby, usually one of his employees. Typically, he is a compassionate, kind, and dedicated person, and if you met him, you would find his charisma really contagious. But when the stress mounts for him, he sometimes explodes in unprofessional ways. And even after repeatedly being reprimanded and warned by his superiors in the organization, he was unable to resist. And it devastated his career and the lives of many people all around him. All of us have stuff that we struggle to resist. Maybe we spend a bit more money than we really should. Maybe we resist holding a grudge against a family member who hurt us a long time ago. Maybe we can't even resist checking the cell phone constantly when we're at the park playing with a toddler. During World War II, folks all across Europe banded together to form what was called an underground resistance movement. Brave Christians and Jews resisted the commonly accepted belief at that time that people who were different, people who were Jewish or homosexual or had a birth defect, were somehow less than everyone else. And these folks in the resistance movement risked their own lives to smuggle children and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters across the borders by night. Kyle Childress, a pastor, remembers a time that he went to Vanderbilt in Tennessee to listen to a series of lectures by some leading theologians. At this particular lecture, William Stringfellow and Will Campbell were slated to speak. But when Stringfellow came to the stage, he shocked everyone because instead of coming out with lecture notes, he simply sat down at the desk on the stage, looked out at the other scholars, and he said, the vocation of a Christian at this time in our country is resistance. And he got up and he walked off the stage and folks were angry and they shouted and they held their fist up. And the other speaker, Will Campbell, came to the microphone and he said, well, I don't know who that Bill Stringfellow is, but it sounds to me like he's a prophet. I don't know what in your life needs resistance today, but you do. And today's scripture portrays for us how it is that Jesus went about this task of resistance. When I read this story about Jesus resisting the devil's urging, it almost seems to me like Jesus is in a bubble, like a mannequin, like a plastic figure. He seems completely unflappable. The devil is persisting and prodding and insisting and conjoling, and Jesus just remains so calm and unflappable and so firmly focused on resisting the cunning ways of that devil. Three times, the devil attempts to knock Jesus off his game. Three times, Jesus resists. First, the devil tempts Jesus on a personal level to a hungry Jesus Fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, he says, hey, turn those stones into bread. 
And then Satan tempts Jesus to become a politician. He says, worship me and I will give you authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. And then the devil sneaks in and begins dabbling in Jesus' own business, the religious business. He takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and he says, jump and let the angels of God reach out and catch you. But Jesus refuses to be coerced. He refuses to enter in to coercing God. Jesus resists, but how? Well, according to the story, Jesus is completely human. He's fasted for 40 days already, and he's famished. The story begins by telling us that this Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the first line of the text. Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. He has just come up dripping wet from the baptismal waters of the River Jordan, and he has received there at the hands of the baptism by John the Baptist the Spirit represented in a dove. And it is that same Spirit that now leads him out into the wilderness, and there Jesus is all alone nothing but the sound of crickets. And there he senses the Spirit of God breathing in his own breath. He experiences energy to resist, coming from a sense of God's deep spirituality pulsing within his own veins. You know, today spirituality is all the rage. Yoga and contemplative prayer and spiritual retreats and silent meditation have become not the domain of the church anymore, but they're mainstream, they're even in business. Those who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious often pose a helpful critique to those of us inside religious circles. They often remind us that Jesus was a deeply spiritual person, not just a person walking around with a set of rigid rules for us to follow. Do you realize that 50 years ago, if you went down to the plaza and went into the bookstore and looked for the shelf of books on spirituality, you would not be able to find such a book? Now, you might find a book about piety or holiness or Christian morality, but there was no spirituality section or book. But today, right now, if you pull out your phones and go onto Amazon and type in a search for books on spirituality, you will receive 200,000 choices. Good luck. Have you ever noticed that some folks call themselves spiritual but not religious? And some folks call themselves spiritual and religious, but nobody ever goes around saying, I'm religious but not spiritual. <laughs> but some of us are. When Jesus resists, he quotes scripture back to the devil. Three times, Jesus quotes verses that he surely memorized in Sunday school in the temple, verses from the book of Deuteronomy. The devil says, turn stone to bread, and he responds with a verse from Deuteronomy, man does not live by bread alone. The devil says, worship me and become a political ruler, and Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil says, jump off the temple and wait for the angels to swoop in and catch you. And he quotes Deuteronomy, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is able to resist 
by relying on the religion of his father and his grandfather and his great-grandmother. Jesus is alone in the wilderness, and yet Jesus is not alone at all. He has with him the ancient wisdom of the entire community of faith at that moment and in all the thousands of years of faithful who have preceded him. It is that ancient reservoir of religion that gives him in that moment the power of holy resistance. God strengthens his soul through his religion. Too often we associate religion with narrow-mindedness and rigid belief systems and organizations that do not bend towards grace. But the word religion comes from the Latin word ligure, L-I-G-U-R-E. Ligure means to bind or to attach. And so religion means to reattach or to rebind. For through our religion, we are bound to one another, to a community of faith now and in the past and in the future. But there is a recent book about the Bible that reminds us that Cicero interpreted the word religion to come from a different Latin word. Instead of L-I-G-U-R-E, meaning to bind, it could be from the Latin word L-E-G-U-R-E, which means to read. And so religion can also be thought of as a re-reading of the ancient story of faith, which is exactly what Jesus is doing in, in today's story. He is reading again the story of his religious ancestors who also resisted the temptation to turn away from God. All of us, our generation, the next generation, the past generation, we are called to reread the story and to find meaning and purpose there. Do you remember the stories of, about St. Francis of Assisi? Maybe you've even been to Assisi. Francis was that wild party guy from an elite family in Italy in the Middle Ages. If you can picture Francis of Assisi in artwork, you will remember that he is always surrounded by birds and different animals because when he left his former life of wealth and wild parties, he turned to a very simple life where he embraced nature and where he walked among the poorest of the poor. Recently, I heard a story about Francis of Assisi that I had not known or had certainly forgotten. It was in a podcast where Jean Vanier was interviewed. He said that during Francis's lifetime, there were at least 20,000 homes sprinkled throughout Europe that were housing people who had leprosy. And so it was a very common phenomenon to bump into someone who had leprosy. But Francis was very uncomfortable with lepers. He was very afraid of them. He said he couldn't stand being around them because one was missing an ear, or had a gaping wound, or they smelled bad, and it was terribly uncomfortable for them. He hated being, being near them. But one day he was out riding his horse in the countryside, and he had recently returned from the battlefield where he had been imprisoned as a prisoner of war for over a year, and his own health was now diminished. And so on this particular day, as he was riding his horse across the countryside, he saw a leper. 
and he got down off his horse and he approached the leper and he embraced him and kissed him. And he said that when he left the presence of the leper that day, that he experienced both in his body and in his spirit this overwhelming sense of gentleness. For him, it was a moment of conversion, not just a change of mind, but a change of attitude. For it was the first time in his life that he had seen in the leper the face of God. I love that story because it reminds me that this one we revere, Francis of Assisi, like Jesus, was not perfect, but also faced temptation and testing and trial and wrestled with his own human frailty and weakness. And you know, neither of them had more willpower than you and me. But having said yes to God, they were empowered to say no to all that was not part of the way of love of God. Both of them experienced God both in deep personal spirituality and in the community of religious folk. In both sources, they found the power to resist. Fred Craddock, who always seems to look at a Bible story from a little bit different angle than the rest of us, pointed out that in this story, Jesus is not resisting bad stuff, but good stuff. In a world of hungry people, wouldn't it be great if one of you would turn stones to bread so that everyone would have enough to eat? In a world of political messes, wouldn't it be great to elect Jesus as the ruling authority? In a world of flawed religions, wouldn't it be great if Jesus would just coerce everyone to be loving and kind? But Jesus resists rising up and taking over for God. Instead, he surrenders his life to the way of gentleness and peace. Jesus wasn't tempted to eat chocolate or to cheat on his taxes. The real temptation that the devil offered to Jesus was not to fall, but to rise. At the end of the story, Luke tells us that the devil departed until an opportune time. And then Jesus departs the wilderness, and he teaches, and he preaches, and he heals. And then when Jesus finally sees the handwriting on the wall, knowing that the authorities are now plotting his own crucifixion, Jesus goes into the garden, and he kneels to pray and to weep. Jesus faces tremendous pain. Death looms. Suffering hangs on. The devil returns, tempting him to forgo the cross. In this moment of supreme vulnerability, Jesus prays, Not my will, but thine be done. The opportune time has come. Who knows? when the opportune time will come for you and for me.